I Love Mortgage Brokering, episode 85. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hi, Broker Nation. I am thrilled to introduce my guest today, Dustin Woodhouse. He's a broker with CME, one of the top brokers in the country with DLC. Recently, he wrote a book called Be the Better Broker. It is volume one of a four-volume set. Dustin doesn't do anything the easy way. He always does it the right way and the hard way. And uh, we're going to chat about this first volume and a little bit about what his plans are. I'm pumped for this interview today. Dustin, are you ready to rock? Absolutely, Scott. Thank you. Awesome. So my first question, I read the book. Uh, I love it. There's lots of great, I've got mine underlined. I got little dog ears on it, but why write the book? Like, you know, you're a busy guy. You're one of the top with DLC. Why write the book? Well, I mean, I'm a huge book guy. Like I, I love, always, I've always loved reading. I generally try and burn through a book a week myself. I've done for years. And so when I started brokering, I immediately searched for books on brokering. And there was some stuff written, you know, pre-crash U.S., um, but broker-to-broker content really wasn't a whole lot to be found on the Canadian side. And, and, you know, eight years later, there still isn't. It was on my mind for three or four years to do something about it. And, you know, I had this Word document that had grown to about 40,000 words. You know, trying to corral that into a, a book just seemed like an overwhelming task and so I never really got around to it um, but that all kind of came to a head at Christmas time when my daughter handed me a journal in the opening sentence uh, she had written in the first page was somebody gave me a journal and told me I should write a book one time you should take they should take their own advice mm-hmm. that's good and uh, so she sort of gave me a, a nudge and uh, at around the same time I read Gary Keller's uh, book the one thing and it talked about not just carving out a space of time, which for me is 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. Uh, weekdays or weekends. That's that's the quiet space in my life. Um, but carving out a space. And so I created sort of a second space in my home office that was disconnected from the Internet. No email. Wouldn't have my phone on that desk. It was a space for writing. And that's it. And, uh, and and really got heavily focused and got the help of some quality copy editors and, uh, and a quality publisher. Although that's another story because, you know, if you're a nobody, you pay a lot of money to write a book. You don't get paid to write a book. Mm-hmm. Obviously, so the first thing in your mind was, okay, there's nothing available. You already started creating this document and then you're, you, that, that book, the one thing, by the way, if anybody hasn't read it, is a fantastic book about just focus and for somebody like myself who has notoriously you know ADHD um it's it's good but so was the idea that you're going to hope to make a lot of money like or like from the book i know i'm saying that tongue in cheek cuz we've had a discussion off air but what was the what's the re, what's the realities of writing a book for a niche market like mortgage brokering well i mean the realities is that there there is very little money in books and um i mean i don't mind giving you some rough numbers like there's probably at this point, about $20,000 of actual expenses in getting it published, printed, existing. Mm-hmm. And the payback is very low. I mean, on a Kindle, you're getting about, I think it's $5.83 a copy. And uh, on a paperback retail sale, it's about $11. So, you know, when I look at uh, what I've put out there, what I've got to get back, 
sure there's 18,000 brokers nationwide. Um, are they all going to buy a copy? No. Uh, will one in 10 buy a copy? I hope so, because then I might break even. And so my goal, really, sincerely, is just to break even. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if you think about it from the context of, you know, sell another thousand books, maybe make another $8,500. Well, the audience is mortgage brokers. So, you know, you can do that math yourself. I mean, what do you think takes more energy trying to sell a thousand books to this niche little market or processing three, two or three mortgage files? Mm-hmm. Like, stick to your business, write mortgages, don't write books. I mean, I, I, I repeated that to myself for quite a while, but as you point out, I, I kind of decided I needed to do this. And, and like I say, I, you know, sharing to a great extent is selfish in mm-hmm. that the more you share your processes, the more you try and, uh, you know, teach something to somebody, the more you learn about how you're doing it. And, and the more you sort of self-evaluate, is this how I should be doing it? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, hey, I, I won't lie to you. I mean, there, there are days that I get up and I just want to put jeans and a T-shirt on and go into the office. But, you know, I've written a chapter titled Suit Up and Show Up. And if I show up in my office in a jeans and a T-shirt, I'm going to get called out on it. Right. And, uh, so I've I, I boxed myself into a corner on a few different topics and uh you know same thing when i talk about always answering every single phone call you know when you called me for this earlier this morning it came up as an unknown number mm-hmm. and uh you know because you're calling me from skype and could be anybody and i you know had a few things going on it was like do i really want to start a brand new conversation because that's probably a brand new client and- right i wasn't calling you for a mortgage by the way <laughs> <laughs> no, I could. You didn't like know. I, who, say, I didn't. I, I didn't introduce myself, which was my bad. I could have actually just started going. So uh, my friend told me to call you, and I heard you're good. So and I could have just it went through your whole process as far as till you caught me. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to be a pretty good actor to pull that off. But uh, I've had a few people uh, who've tested me, called me, they blocked their number and called. I just wanted to see if you really answer blocked numbers. Like, I, I try to every single time, unless I'm on the phone with another client already. Mm-hmm. So one of the other things that uh, I wanted to ask you about when, in regards to the book is, so what are the challenges of, obviously, you figured out, okay, I need to, car- I had, you had this rough draft of a document, you carved out three hours a day in, early in the morning, and then now that you've got it out there, so how do you promote it? How do you sell it when your main job is brokering? What I've found is, in my mind, you know, months ago, it was, I'll produce this book, I'll put it out there, and then... I won't have to think about it anymore. Um, you know, yes, I have uh, volume two in the works. Um, you know, first draft is just about wrapped up. And I've got a volume three and a volume four outline. And I, and I want to complete the whole thing. And it's going to be, realistically, it's going to be about a two-year start-to-finish project. But what I didn't account for time-wise at all, trying to promote the book or, or, or get it out there, and as I say, I mean, the, the lucky thing is, you know what, I can just process two or three mortgages. The income from that largely offsets the cost of the book. And I don't have to, you know, that's how I try and even it out in my mind. Because, you know, the, the whole project overall probably will turn into about a $50,000 adventure over two years. And like I say, with any luck, I'll break even. If I really focus the time, I probably could turn some kind of profit on it. But again, 
dollars per hour, it would never match, right. You know, spending that time focused on, on brokering. So the bottom line is I'm not really promoting it very heavily. I mean, I'm not, I'm just not chasing, uh, you know, a lot of the media sources I probably should be or, or any of those things. It's out there. It's getting talked about on, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And I've had some, some really great people write some really wonderful uh, posts, yourself included. I've got a lot of great Amazon reviews. Mm-hmm. And um, honestly, it's going to have to be organic and grassroots because I can't take the time away from my clients and from my existing business to focus on this. It's, the potential just isn't there. I mean, if there was a potential to sell 2 million copies, if you're like John Grisham or something. Sure. Like, hey, that's a different story. But that's not who I am, and that's not what this book is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally. And in a lot of ways, it's the same thing with the I Love Mortgage Brokering podcast is that so we do it. But, like, I don't the, – we're almost at 40,000 downloads. We'll probably be there within the next week, and it's all word of mouth. I have no budget for marketing it. I have no time because I'm trying to work on my deals, but I do it because – keeps me sharp i meet some interesting people like that's how we connected many like quite a while ago and so yeah i, I agree so it's not like anybody listening don't think that we're either one of us are going to get rich from uh these endeavors but we do we do them because we enjoy them and we know that ultimately it makes us better at what we do one of the things in your book that i love is you talk about or you had mentioned this before but you're about always being on the client side it says uh, you have to be on the client side it's all about the client and solutions for the client not solutions for you so can you just share your thoughts around that because i think a lot of a lot of times our industry can really start to think about you know even the lenders do this unintentionally they'll come to us and talk about well this is the commission and this and they're always talking about the money 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 and not about what is what's the benefit to the client so talk about your thoughts on that well, you know, and, and that's a, a bit of a timely question, too, because, of course, here in British Columbia right now, we've got uh, the regulator pushing for full disclosure on fees. And they want us to basically, in our Form 10 disclosure document, spell out to the penny exactly what our compensation is from a lender. And I, and I say that that's a timely thing because the thing is, Scott, in 1,200 files, I can literally count on one hand. Um, the number of times that I've calculated a commission in advance. And it was only because uh, the size of the file, you, you kind of get curious, and, you know, when you get your first $2 million plus file or something. Still waiting for one of those, Dustin. I'm in the wrong market, buddy. I'm, I, I have not seen one that big in my market. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ap- apologies to all the small market uh, brokers listening to this, but, but yeah, at the end of the day, I, you know, and, and again, I guess, too, I've had the luxury. You know, my average file size is 435000 So mm-hmm. I don't need to calculate my commission. I know I can cover the appraisal. I know I can, you know, address a few other little things along the way. And that's, uh, I'm not going to be going backwards. Dollar-wise, mm-hmm. I'll be in the black. And, and so, yeah, I've just never, ever calculated it. And I've watched brokers you know, send a file to a certain lender because they pay a certain compensation. And I said to them, mark my words, that file will not complete. Mm-hmm. And, and sure enough, it doesn't. And whether it's karma or, or by design, you know, it, it just doesn't wind up working that way. And so, yeah, it's always got to be about the solutions for the client. And, and, you know, on that disclosure topic, not to digress too far, I don't have a problem disclosing to a client what the compensation is because I know I'll be able to articulate that. You know, I'll be able to explain to the client, hey, I don't get vacation pay. I I don't have a pension. 
I do have an assistant. I do have rent. I have overhead. This is gross revenue. This is a gross sale. You know, when you go to the gas station and pump a liter of gas, it's not like the entire dollar twenty nine or whatever it is goes into the pocket mm-hmm. of that gas station. You know, they keep a penny per liter. Right. You know, we keep a, we keep a better ratio than that, but there's a significant chunk of expenses. So, so I'm not concerned about having to disclose that per se, but I, you know, honestly, my concern is I don't even know what my lenders actually pay me. I, I'm actually going to have to learn all of that, and you know, that's going to be some. It's going to slow the process down on my side. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to have to be calculating that out, putting that in, spending five or ten minutes talking about it, and uh, and for a lot of clients, that will be a confusing topic. Um, right, and it is a not a level playing field either, because of course the the bank reps don't have to disclose what they make, and uh, and they're driven in a much different way than we're driven as well. I mean, they have sales targets on certain products they have to mm-hmm. hit. Right, we don't. I mean, I can send one file to one credit union the whole year, and it's okay. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, because the collective pooling in our office keeps that credit union happy. Mm-hmm. So I've got access to that credit union for one file a year. I don't have to hit any kind of quota whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, as I say, I mean, that, the, the key point there is absolutely focus on what makes the most sense for the client. You know, what is the best lending option for them? Um, I totally agree. You had said something to me once. You said, win the client, not the, not the deal. And uh, it's about being thinking client first. A couple of things. One of the things in your book that I, if somebody has, hasn't read the book, you should go get a copy. That's my pr- plug for it. If you're a, a longtime broker and you think, wow, what am I going to learn from volume one? I'm telling you, like I went through it and I'm like, it actually made me excited about my industry again. Not that I wasn't excited already, but it just was like, oh yeah, you see it with fresh eyes. And so if you are an experienced broker, you need to read the book because you'll get a fresh set of eyes at how great our industry is in terms of compared to somebody who owns a little retail shop and they pour all their heart and soul into it and all their savings. And if they're lucky, they'll net $50,000 a year, you know, working like a dog. And so, and then if you're new, you definitely need to read it because there's some stuff in there that's just absolutely like gold in terms of mindset and, you know, getting your priorities in order. But the origin story. So when you started out, you, I love how you talked about your origin story and sort of everybody has an origin story and, and they have to create theirs so that they can be confident as a new broker. So talk to me about the origin story uh, idea because I just thought that I just love that. You know, when you're sitting there with client number one or client number nine or even client number 29, you feel a little awkward. And certainly if they ask you, how long have you been doing this? Uh, how many other clients have you worked with? Uh, you know, it can be, you don't, you, you feel like you shouldn't give an honest answer mm-hmm. um, because you feel like it's, it's going to make you sound weak or whatever. And, you know, as I say, one of my mantras is just own it, mm-hmm. you know, own your mistakes fast, own your origin story fast, own it all. So in those early days, uh, you know, and, and you'd be surprised how few clients actually do question that. Because if you have some knowledge, if you have product knowledge, you know, if you can speak intelligently and you can articulate the differences between, say, a variable rate mortgage that's predicated on the Bank of Canada's uh, overnight lending rate versus 
longer-term fixed rates, which are predicated on the bond market. Like, if you have an understanding of those sorts of things, mm-hmm. right away you know significantly more than your client does, and they're unlikely to challenge you or question you because you're already positioning yourself as the authority. But when somebody point-blank asks you, how long have you been doing this, and you have to say two months, um, yeah, having a bit of a backstory ready is helpful. Mm-hmm. And so I would I would own that. Like I say, I would say, well, actually, I've been doing this for two months, and you're my fourth client. But let me put you at a little bit of ease. Um, you know, at the time when I came into brokering, I was 36, 37, and I would explain that, you know, I bought my very first property when I was 19 years old. I owned three rental properties in my early 20s. You know, I've bought and sold a number of residential and commercial properties over the years. I've run my own business. I had 14 employees at one point. You know, I, got, I have a pretty good head on my shoulders for numbers, and I've always been interested in real estate finance. And I kept the copy. I, I didn't have the original. I had to actually order it off of Amazon. But I ordered um, up this, this old book that I had ordered way back in my early 20s. Um, not worth ordering. I'm not even going to give you the title because it's not worth anybody's time to read today. It's, it's so out of date. But it was a 200-page book on mortgages. Mm-hmm. And, and I would pull it off the, my bookshelf if I was sitting in my office with clients, and I would say, I bought this book when I was 24 years old and I read it cover to cover. How many 24-year-olds read a 200-page book on mortgages? That's the kind of geek I've been for a long time. So you're in good hands. Don't worry. You know, and they would love that, right? That, that works. Mm-hmm. You know, now, that was my story. Those, those are all truthful pieces of the story. Um, of course, it gets more difficult if you're 23 years old and you haven't even bought your own first property yet. Um, that's a little tougher. Email me. I'll help you with your origin story. Right. But, uh, but you got to have one. You got to be ready for the, those hard questions in the early days, for sure. Mm-hmm. No, that's that was so good. I looked at that and I was like, man, I wish I would have. Uh, you know, I think I did, but not not as structured as you've recommended people do. And even when somebody's new, I haven't been able to tell them like, you know, okay, that's you you need to design that right at the beginning, and then uh, uh, so that you have something to say. Um, one of the things you say in your book is following your passion is often a dangerous thing. Um, so turning your passion to a business really works over the long haul. So can you just talk about that? Well, I mean, that's a more general, I, I think, sort of thing. And uh, just as somebody who's been in business for themselves and, and who's watched a number of other people open and close uh, small businesses, you know, 96% of businesses don't last 10 years. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that, those, those are the statistics. And when you look at that, there's virtually no business that someone's going to open that's going to last a decade. Mm-hmm. And that's something I think that's worth recognizing because your passion may catch the wave, a cultural wave and be a trend and it may be popular and it may be worth opening a store to sell that product or service that market. But that cultural wave may not last, mm-hmm. you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. It may not last two years. And I think in, in the world we live in today, those cultural waves are, are, are briefer than ever. They, they may crest higher with social media and, and, and mm-hmm. whatnot, but you know trends come and go pretty fast. But at the end of the day, I mean, running a business is hard. Mm-hmm. You know, most people are buying themselves 
an 80-hour workweek job that pays 10 bucks an hour. I mean, that's what a lot of people are buying themselves when they open any kind of small business. It's it's a grind. And nearly everyone you speak to, no matter how together they are, how great a plan they had, whatever kind of backing they had when they went in, will tell you it took an average of three years to replace their income. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on the one hand, sure, you want to like what you're doing. Um, but when I say, you know, beware of following your passion, you know, if your passion is bicycles or, you know, I, I'm into mountain biking, I'm into dirt biking. Uh, would I open a mountain bike shop or a dirt bike shop? Never. <laughs> That's the quickest way to kill your passion. It, well, it, it, it is because, as I say, you wind up spending 80 hours a week working within that industry. And, uh, and those guys that run those businesses, I mean, I love them for doing it. And, uh, and, and it's a labor of love for them, largely. I mean, very few of those guys are, are earning, you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a month out of those businesses. That's just not the reality. Mm-hmm. And, and like you say, you wind up souring on it to some extent in a lot of cases. So, yeah. you know, on the weekends, I like to throw a leg over and go enjoy a, a mountain bike or a dirt bike. But would I want that to be my full-time business? No. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you got to have some diversity uh, in life and uh, and look at something that's got potentially more staying power and and is potentially a more lucrative business and uh, and a better fit for you ultimately. There's another thing that you had said in the book that I absolutely love. It's the do not be an order taker. Order takers are lazy. Order takers make lame statements when things go wrong, like they never told me X or, well, I just gave the client what they asked for. Order takers do not receive referrals and said they risk being reviled by their clients. Can you elaborate on this? Because I know some people that I need to get to read this, but I love that statement because t- talk to me about that. I, got, I have a perfect anecdotal story for you for this. So just yesterday morning, I got a, I got a CC'd on an email from a, a realtor I work with and, and his client. And his client says, sure, I'd be happy to talk to your guy already have an approval from big bank and it's mm-hmm. a bank that we have access to. Um, I've been approved for uh, whatever the dollar amount was. Uh, I've been approved for a 2.69 five year fixed 18 year amortization. Mm-hmm. So I emailed him back and I said, I won't be available. The earliest I can connect with you is about 10 o'clock in the morning. I said, I'm really sorry. I have a very full day of pre-book calls. The earliest I can connect you with would be six o'clock tonight. But there are three key things that I see worth discussing uh, that could be potential problems for you in the approval that you have currently. And he immediately emails me back, three key things out of one sentence? Seriously? <laughs> and um, and I, said, I said, you know, we will cover it in detail tonight at 6 o'clock. So no doubt I kind of left them hanging a little bit. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. that's a hook, man. I, that's a that's. Well, and I, and, I, and I said to him, I'm not intentionally trying to hook you. I'm just, I'm extremely busy at the moment. And there's about 500 words that we need to, to use to discuss these three things. So anyway, we connected at six o'clock and uh, he says, so, so what are we looking at? And I said, well, I said, the first issue is you're, you're a professional. You're well into the six figures income wise. Um, and I can tell that just from his email signature. So mm-hmm. uh, And he said, how do you know that? I said, well, your email signature indicates to me that this is the case. And, you know, we're talking about a $200,000 mortgage. You are not a candidate for a five-year fix. You're a candidate for a variable rate mortgage. And that's a conversation we should be having. Mm 
And the first conversation, the first point is the penalty structure between a five-year fix and a variable. So we went through that. And then I said, the second point is, hey, um, you know, if you want a five-year fix, no problem, but let's talk about the penalty structure of a five-year fix with the chartered bank, with whom I place a significant number of my clients, but only in variable rate product, not fixed rate. If we're going to go fixed rate, let's look at the penalty difference with what we call a monoline lender. Mm-hmm. And so then we had a little conversation about monolines. But he was kind of off the five-year fix after, you know, I laid out some of the key points on the variable. Mm-hmm. You'd be amazed how, who, how few people understand that the Bank of Canada only meets eight times per year, that mm-hmm. rates, incre- rates tend to move in increments of a quarter point, like, no, you're not going to wake up with double your mortgage payment the next day. Like, that's not how a variable rate mortgage works. Mm-hmm. So we were sort of drifting back into the variable. Then the next point we hit was the 18-year amortization. I said, yeah. you know, you've told me now that this is an investment property, so so this makes the, the topic, there's actually two points, not just one I'm going to make on this. Number one, you still have a mortgage on your residence. That interest isn't tax deductible. The rental uh, property that is tax deductible. Mm-hmm. So you've got to attack this. And, uh, and you know, he was loving that. And I, and I encouraged him to contact his accountant mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, have a conversation with his accountant about that. But I know what the accountant's going to say. Ma- maximize the amortization on the rental, mm-hmm. focus the extra money uh, on the hill. Then we got into that 18-year amortization itself. And, again, we speak about the fact, and, and again, none of this had been explained by the bank rep. Not one thing I've given him yet has he said to me, oh, yes, the, the bank rep explained that to me. I said, you know, you're doing two things uh, when you lock yourself into an eight. I, actually, the term I use is box yourself into an 18-year amortization. I said, number one, if you ever want to lower that payment for any reason, you would trigger a prepayment penalty, which we talked about, and, and legal fees to re-amortize that mortgage. Not necessarily legal fees with every lender, but, but a prepayment penalty to re-amortize. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that could be very problematic. And with some lenders, you may need to requalify as well. Which again, if you need to reamortize, that could be because you've had job issues. You may not requalify, so it can become really complicated. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, you know, if you if you contract for thirty years, you can through the prepayment privileges offered, you can reduce your effective amortization to less than five years. So you know, I made the point that. 1,214 clients later, I have had not, not one client sign an amortization below 25 years. Mm-hmm. Like my clients take the maximum amortization on paper every single time, and then we use the prepayment privileges to crank it back up. Mm-hmm. And it's a little clunky sometimes setting it up, and, uh, and, you know, and that's fine, because in the end, you know, it, it opens them up for that ability. And it isn't just you know, having the ability if something negative happens in your life. It's also, what if you want to buy another rental property? Now you've created an artificially high payment and Mm -hmm. your property no longer positively cash flows and you're not going to qualify for another property. So as I say, we got to the end of all of that. You know, he says, so you still favor, uh, you know, the the variable or the two-year fixed with this same lender I've been speaking with. Now we're getting into the danger zone, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm like, Yes. And he's like, well, so maybe I should call this fellow back and have another conversation with him. You know, and that's where you sort of have to take a little initiative. And I said, well, I don't really think you should. I mm-hmm. said, 
you know, all the information I've given you is information that that fellow should have. And I said, let, let me ask you one last question. I said, I don't normally talk about life insurance or disability until the very end. And, uh, and, and I don't often reference it favorably, especially for a 50-year-old individual. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would probably suggest to you that it's going to be a radically overpriced product that you're not going to be well served by. And you may want to meet with a, an independent financial planner. And he said, wow, it's interesting that you do bring that up because, yeah, the other guy was actually pushing the creditor insurance really aggressively. You know, he was really pushing this critical illness coverage. And I said, yes, he has a certain sales target he has to hit. I said, I don't. I said, you know, that's not how I look at it. I mm-hmm. said, all the information I've given you is information that individual had. And you said you've been working with him for two weeks and he hasn't shared one bit of that with you. I said, you know, that <laughs> seems so very transactional. Yeah. yeah. So Did he end up coming back to you or what? Well, and that's the cool thing about being able to tell you this story right now. So about an hour before we uh, connected for this call, I got an email from him uh, saying, you know, spoke with my wife, uh, slept on it. You made so many great points. Um, absolutely, we want to move forward with you. And also, can you please contact my wife directly at this number because she also owns another rental property that's up for renewal uh, in 60 days, and she'd like you to assist with that one. Right. So, yeah. There we go. Boom. So this this is okay. So we have to wrap it up. But even though we could talk for hours, but um, this is a perfect example of why order takers don't get referrals, and why if you ask questions and look the, the best way to serve the client, you're going to gen- look. You, you generated a referral because of the way that you dealt with that client. So anybody listening, uh, you need to be. And if you don't have the skills to do it, you need to upgrade your skills. You need to be constantly learning and getting better at understanding the mortgage process and the differences in the mortgages so that you can actually serve your clients in a way like this. Cause this is like, this is golden, golden stuff. So Dustin, when is volume two coming out? Uh, target date is March 1st. Volume, volume one was, you know, so, so you want to be a broker. So that, that it was largely targeted at uh, not so much existing brokers as people thinking about becoming a broker or it's targeted at every broker out there who, who should really have a couple copies on the shelf hand to somebody who says, hey, can you tell me about brokering? You want to save yourself an hour of your life, hand them a copy of the book. Say, go read this, then come back and, and we'll have a, a more meaningful conversation. That, that was sort of the, the target for, for Volume 1. Volume 2 picks up on, okay, you read Volume 1, you decided uh, you wanted to get licensed, you're licensed at day one. What you know, 20 core principles should you be putting in place from day one that will serve you that, that far too many people sort of put off, you know, implementing CRM. What does that look like? Uh, hiring an assistant, having a proper office space, all these sorts of things. And, and again, I do my best to try and break things down with actual numbers and really map things out as far as what is your actual cost to do this and what is the potential benefit. Um, and no, I didn't do a very thorough cost benefit analysis on the topic of a book, but Hey, I'm really enjoying the process of, of writing, yeah. And uh, and like I say, it's making me better uh, at what I do, and it's and it's helping me organize all of my own thoughts into you know a couple nice volumes where I'll be able to reference a lot of this information myself. So yeah, volume two will will pick up and sort of your first year or two in the business. That's what this looks like. Awesome. Well, volume three is going to be for those that are sort of feeling like they've plateaued. They've been in the business for a while and. How do we take it to the next level, whatever that level might be for you? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, what about volume four? What's the... Volume four is, what does it look like when you've gone too far, Scott? <laughs> uh, that, that, that'll be how to throttle back right. a little bit you get, you need to write that but, book to figure that out <laughs> you, you know what I was just speaking with another broker about this this morning and, and, and volume 4 has the potential to be one of those books where it's like you know I made all this money but my life got completely out of balance and uh, I, I, I wish I'd done this differently that differently the other thing and whenever I would read books like that I would always say yeah, but this guy's got millions. Like, where is the other book that he wrote telling me how to get the millions? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, yes, it yes it cost him years of no family vacations or whatever, but look where he got to. How do I get there? Mm-hmm. And so that's what these first three books really are. They're the they're the how to for business success. They are they are not a holistic whole life you know success series. Mm-hmm. This is totally focused on business, which is what I have been for a number of years, trying to back off of that a little bit at this point. But, you know, if you really want to rocket launch your business and you really want to get to another level, here are some core principles that have worked for me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, yeah, volume, volume four, I don't know, maybe the subtitle would be cruise control, you know, how to, how to try and set, figure out what speed you want to set that cruise control at and get it set there and, uh, and have a life. And I actually do have a, a, a pretty darn good life. I, I, I have a happy wife and happy kids. So I, none of us have anything to complain about. Right. No, that's awesome. Well, anybody listening to this, go to ilovemortgagebrokering.com. They can get links to everything we talked about, links to being able to get the book. Dustin, where can people find you online? Uh, well, the, the book uh, I've set up a domain for, bethebetterbroker.com. And, uh, and of course, it's available on Amazon. And be the betterbroker.com. There's also a broker to broker blog uh, that I'm trying to update about every two weeks, you know, some topical what's happening in the world of brokers uh, and little tidbits, uh, things that got left on the cutting room floor from the first book. I'm, I'm putting those back out as well through that channel. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll do another interview when the second book comes out and I've had a chance to look at it and uh, we'll, we'll get it out there again for you. I really appreciate your time, Dustin, and I hope you continue to crush it. Thanks for the opportunity, Scott. I really appreciate it.